Hey, it's Sarah. That's what she said with Sarah Spain is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Don't forget to check out Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. On the latest episode, Julie chatted with Neko Ogumake about what life was like inside the Wubble, as well as her experience as president of the WNBA Players Association. You can find Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Stone Gossard, and my dilemma is that I'd like to have three glasses of wine every night, and I realize that I I really can't do that, so that's my dilemma. Yeah, it's a dilemma for sure, but I think you seem like you already have a handle on it. You know your limits. I mean, for me, early in the pandemic, I was definitely popping bottles and drinking a little bit more. But a couple months ago, I realized that being tired and hungover and cranky didn't really help with all the existing feelings of anxiety and malaise. Uh, Not to mention waking up and mistaking a scratchy throat from late night wine for COVID symptoms was a pretty terrible way to start every day. So I think we, we need to think about being gentle with ourselves when it comes to eating and drinking and other pleasures during this very weird time. But also understand that those things aren't fixes for what's bothering us. They're just a cover-up. And so, uh, you know, adding alcohol dependency or unhealthy weight gain or just unhealthiness in general to the existing risks of a pandemic probably isn't wise. Uh, We might want to move in some meditation, long walks, exercise, phone calls with friends, uplifting television, doggy snuggles. And of course, you know, great music like Pearl Jam and Painted Shield. Those are some some good choices. Mix those in with the wine, for sure. The commish has spoken. My guest is the incredibly cool and kind and down-to-earth Stone Gossard, who happens to be a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the guitarist and co-lyricist for one of the greatest bands of all time, Pearl Jam. Uh, Stone also just finished an album with a side project called Painted Shield, Uh, It's him, Mason Jennings, Matt Chamberlain, and Brittany Davis. They're going to release their debut album on November 27th on Stone's revived Loose Groove Records, which uh, was a sort of long dormant label that uh, issued records from the likes of Queens of the Stone Age. It was founded back in 94, and well, they're back now for this new Painted Shield album. We talk about his first bands, like uh, Mother Lovebone, dealing with the death of his bandmate to overdose and the Temple of the Dog album that resulted from that death, including what the then-just-forming Pearl Jam members learned from working with seasoned Soundgarden pros Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron. Also, 30 years after Pearl Jam was formed, he talks about the secrets of their longevity and sticking together, dealing with fame, the band's fight with Ticketmaster, and working and writing with Eddie Vedder, what that process is like, plus how his new group, Painted Shield, put together a socially distanced album, Uh, his fandom of the Seahawks, Eddie's fandom of the Cubs, and more. I really tried my best during this not to pull the the whole Matt Foley thing, you know. Remember when your album 10 was basically the soundtrack of my youth, and remember that time you crushed at Wrigley Field, and remember that song, Future Days, that's my wedding first dance, and remember one of the greatest lines in the history of Forever in Black. I did all right. I think you could still hear it. It's kind of bubbling beneath the surface, that crazy fandom. I hope you guys uh, enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed talking to him. That's what she said. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I am so excited to have Stone Gossard here on the podcast. You guys all know I love having musicians on, but this is like a different level of musician. This is uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, Hall of Famer Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam, and part of a brand new group, too, that um, I've just gotten to listen to the album. Pretty psyched about that and amazed by the fact that it's essentially a socially distanced super group, which uh, is a very 2020 thing. Very 2020 thing. Uh, we're going to get to Painted Shield, but I, I sort of love chronology here because um, I think it's interesting to see how things develop um, with time. So let's go way back, way sure. back. Your bio consists entirely just of all the bands you've been in. There is no proof whatsoever that you've ever done anything other than rock. So c- can you take me to any time <laughs> in your life when you were not just rocking? First of all, I've, I'm completely unable to do anything other than just think of new bands to be in because I've been so <laughs> rewarded with it throughout my life that now I'm trapped in the, uh, uh, that's, that's my one idea I, I have over and over again is to think, I'm going to try to surround myself by, with really talented people and somehow end up not really having to do homework. And um, <laughs> there you go. That could actually be my other dilemma that we can get into. I've got multiple <laughs> dilemmas. So this, you know, this could go on. It could be a series. of. Listen, it's 2020. Issues. Anyone who doesn't have any dilemmas right now is uh, uh, deeply disturbed, I would say. I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in rock. And, uh, you know, I, I mean that sincerely because really I started playing guitar when I was 16 years old, which is pretty late. And the only idea I had, which was given to me by... Steve Turner, who is the guitar player in Mudhoney, who is very influential personality in my life. And, and Mudhoney is probably the, the prototypical grunge band um, of all times, um, said, you got to get in a band and just be kind of sh- you can be kind of crappy. Just, you know, you got to surround yourself with kind of this kind of person or that or just kind of develop a, a sound and then, you know, and then just kind of wing it. And I uh, really <laughs> stuck to that script. So now I'm, you know, forever being terrorized by the idea of actually having to get up and show people what I know about guitar because they'd be like, wait a minute, that's all you know. I get the feeling you know a bit by now. I get the feeling you're doing all right for yourself. Although I like that imposter syndrome even applies to Hall of Famers. Uh, It's nice that everybody has that. (laughs) It's the opposite of the NFL, because if you're in the NFL and you're um, you're faking it, um, it's it's very there's no you can't fake it in the NFL. Yeah. And uh, and in rock and roll, that's I mean, which I love about rock and roll. It's it's sort of a show. It's kind of music. It's all it's everything combined into one thing and it's um it's really a blessing for me yeah. personally so i love that arguably uh a lot of people would point to green river as the first grunge band was that your first band with jo- jeff ament already or were you dabbling a little bit before you jumped into that i think i dabbled only in the sense that i joined a band that i never actually played with i might have rehearsed <laughs> with once um so uh, Green River was definitely the, the first band and uh, Green River was influenced by a lot of bands that were already moving in that direction in terms of 
uh, staying sort of with the sort of do-it-yourself punk ethos, but also letting sort of the 80s and punk rock, heavy metal, 70s rock, uh, art, noise rock, um, all of that kind of turn into one big kind of thing. It was, it turned into more uh, do whatever you can, as opposed right. to like, this is really specifically got to be this. So um, I was, I was real fortunate to be part of that. Um, we're going to get into longevity later, but I, I love that essentially you and Jeff Ament have been musically married for like 40 yeah. years at this point. That's it's, unbelievable. It's coming up on 40 years. And, yeah. and, you know, for the first 20 years, we fought like cats and dogs. And now we're just <laughs> like, we look at each other and it's going to go, wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So uh, then that turns into eventually Mother Love Bone, Jeff Ament also in that group. Um, but an overdose for, for Andrew Wood, the front man in that band. Um, that's a very early time in your musical life uh, to have tragedy strike and to be um, experiencing something that's sort of, unfortunately, this stereotypical idea of rock and roll, yeah. right? It, uh, what was that like? And did that influence at all your view of what this was as a job beyond just a, a, a something that you love, like understanding the, the risks of getting into something that does have that attached to it? I mean, you know, drugs were part of the scene from the get-go. So, you know, I guess... You know, so we'd been in it for six years and it, we knew it was around. Andrew at the time had been clean for, you know, nine months or something. Had gone to rehab, was really committed to like, oh, my God, I got to, you know, I have this opportunity. We're making this record. I've got a major label deal. And it's unfortunate that it's it's sort of a it can be a typical scenario with overdoses where people are clean. And then because their tolerance is mm. um so lowered and because heroin isn't regulated in any way in terms of knowing whether it's what it is or how much it is uh that overdoses are really uh, that's a real typical scenario so losing a friend and also losing somebody with as much like life and charisma as he had you know all of us just wanted to be around him all the time it's still haunts me in in ways to think about how we didn't take care of him as well as that as we should have you know but um it definitely made us think about as we were beginning pearl jam like we recognized pretty quickly that if stuff was not being talked about or if there was um if, if people weren't um taking care of themselves it was going to be um it was going to be an issue you know yeah for sure well, there's such this weird gray area of the creativity and freedom that can be spawned by uh, outside influences, let's say, whether they're yeah. alcohol or drugs or other things. And then how do you then control that, though, to be yeah. people who are doing it for a, a business? And how do you yeah. respect that the other people are devoting their lives and time away from families to tour and everything else to something that is um, is simultaneously art, but also your job? It's, it's Yeah, tricky. I mean well put it's you know it's it's the contradict it's a contradiction and it's and it's something people wrestle with you know a lot of artists wrestle with it and i and i wrestle with it you know i mean I, there's a part of rock and roll is it changes your you know as you experience as you get sort of mystical with a song or a rhythm or just being in this sort of state it's drug-like so there is this sort of natural tendency to want to enhance that or to, or to find this sort of path that that lets you you know take glimpses of that sort of that world and uh it's weird 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure what, what to make of it, you know, yeah. be careful out there, you know, it's a balance um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Andrew, two glasses of wine. That's right. It. Exactly. Keep it at two. Um, <laughs> Andrew Wood, uh, was roommates with Chris Cornell. So Chris Cornell decides let's, let's found a band sort of in honor of him. And it's you and Jeff Ahmet and, and Mike McCready, who you were childhood friends with, but not musically working with. Um, and then Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, Eddie Vedder ends up in there cause he's coming in for an audition for uh, Pearl Jam. So Temple of the Dog happens at the time. Did you think it was a one-off or was there any chance where you believed that that was going to be the band instead of Pearl Jam? <laughs> um, I, I didn't really let myself think that. I mean, I might've dreamed about it because, you know, going from, um, you know, Mother Love Bone, where we were sort of, we, I mean, Mother Love Bone was sort of a struggle towards the end because, you know, it had strong personalities and it wasn't, you know, Andy was having some struggles and, and within the bands, like I said, Jeff and I were, you know, <laughs> fighting, everybody was, it, it wasn't like a, like a great time the last year. It started out great and then it sort of turned into a, a struggle a little bit and, you know, playing with Chris and Matt at that time, Soundgarden was the band in Seattle and it was the, and, and both of those guys had sort of elevated that band to going from this sort of noisy rock art band that we had kind of go, okay, that's great to all of a sudden they sounded like they could be Led Zeppelin. And we were yeah. like, holy, <laughs> that's like, that's a whole nother level. And so when we started recording with them, it was a shock to see how, professional and how incredibly together they were and to witness Chris's songwriting which at that time if you listen to those songs they're so mature and so mm -hmm. the stories he's telling in particular like all night things like one of the most beautiful love songs ever written in my mind and it's written by a you know a 24 year old mm -hmm. and you know but at that time we all felt like we were still 15 so it was like I don't even I might you know I don't even know if I had a girlfriend at that point, you know, I mean, I'm just like, you know, so our minds were expanded a great deal by that experience and by getting to play with, you know, people of, of their caliber. And, and we did that record so quickly. And Chris was so generous with his, the idea of it to start out with, and then including us in part of his process and his grieving process and his artistic process to think, I'm going to include these guys. And then I'm going to also include their new singer who I don't know anything right. about, you know, he didn't know, he'd never heard Ed sing before. He just said, you know, bring him out and we'll, you know, well, it turns out Eddie is great and he did something incredible together, but it's, again, it's a, a lesson in how generosity really can elevate art, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I keep thinking about that as like, what are the, you know, how do you find those moments again where you like, what, is um is generous also just sort of elevates the music and 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 you see it and with ed he he has the same he has the same inclination of of sharing you know it's like we make our new record and he's you know he's singing my lyrics he's singing <laughs> jeff's lyrics he's like doing all kinds of things about you know sort of sharing this process with us where that's not typical of a of a singer and of his stature you know yeah. um it's he really still likes the hey it's a band you gotta yeah. you know work together yeah, yeah and, and it doesn't it's not about the immediate like it's like we're gonna make lots of records there's plenty of time for hit songs or you know whatever so and it's worked that that has really proven to be a a better business strategy as well <laughs> in terms of you know our fans have uh, have gotten used to 
our uh, indulgences and our sort of uh, going down a path with us that isn't always like, okay, everybody agrees that this is exactly how Pearl Jam should sound, which is how bands can get, you can get kind of market tested into a pattern that is just, that's your thing. And uh, so it's, it's, it's worked out that uh, long-term wise, if you kind of are a little bit um, more odd, you can kind of keep <laughs> people for longer, I guess, maybe. Right. Well, and if they trust you too, and and they like to experiment with you and, and they know yeah. you're sticking around to bring back some of the stuff that they like, maybe a little yeah. better than the experimental stuff that it'll. Yeah. It'll yeah. And around. even if they're mad at you one year, you're yeah. going to put another record on. They're like, Hey, I'm not yeah. mad at them. Anymore. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also there's something interesting about you guys being in the process of creating Pearl Jam, which was originally Mookie Blaylock, while while learning from Soundgarden. Talk about a great masterclass in how do we balance all the things we want to do with understanding that these guys are coming in ready to make yeah. something great and professional and, yeah. and uh, way beyond their years, because then I would imagine that influences um, you guys getting off on the right foot and and taking stealing some of those kind of patterns and best practices for for your new band. I mean, we tried, you know, making 10 was not the same as making Temple of the Dog. You know, it's like we were. What was the biggest difference? That we were forming, you know, Chris brought most of those songs. And, you know, when he's developing a song, he's already got his thing that he's doing. We were figuring out what our thing was. You know, Eddie had sang on a couple of things, but it was still wide open what his strengths were and where he would like develop his style versus ours so it was just we had to go we were still in a in the formative stage so it's it's just not a straight line um it was a straight line for temple of the dog you know matt Mm -hmm. and chris stepped in they just throw that shit down and it's (laughs) on fire and then you're like you know put some of your stuff on there too and it doesn't mess it up so yeah perfect great you know like um and, and Mike McCready at the same time, too, just unleashed by their, you know, um, you know, you listen to his lead playing on that. It's just great. So um, but we took a lot from that and we always look to them as our big brothers as that yeah. process was happening. And I think we always, you know, wanted to do more Temple of the Dog. I mean, I think everybody <laughs> wanted to, like, revisit that. And it took us a long time to get back there again, you know. Yeah. I love that um, you guys were figuring out who you are and you end up with 10, which is one of the greatest albums of all time and feels like a band who already very much knows who they are, even though obviously the experimenting and the diverting and going to different places and trying new things has happened over the years. Um, You wrote or co-wrote eight of the 11 songs on that album um, and some of the greatest songs of all time, Alive and Even Flow and Black. Um, At the moment that that it starts a little slow, but then blows up. Are you thinking to yourself, oh, this is it? We've made it? Or is it more, oh, shit, now what do we do? We have to do yeah. more songs and we have to be great again. I mean, it's it's the latter and it's more like, oh, my God, are we, you know, we're uh, jumping out in front of festival audiences in, in Europe going on after totally pro rock bands. And we're still kind of that same punk rock band from Seattle in terms of like, we're playing too fast. We're missing cues. We're stopping in the middle of songs. We're pretty unprofessional, but generally spirited. So I think we got away with a lot of it, you know, because of, you know, I think Ed developing just his sort of like his wild man approach to, you know, sort of how he was invested in 
his performance at that time and connecting with the audience. But I was, I was nervous. I felt unready for it and um, undeserving, you know, mm. of like where it's like crazy, you know, where it's like people yeah. are, you know, it's, it didn't feel, uh, it felt like, wow, okay, this, I wasn't expecting this. Well, and something interesting about sort of that grunge and, and 90s rock era was the idea of like not caring and not trying. And I wonder how much record labels or people managing you tried to create and craft that versus a, like actually being authentically and legitimately sort of free right? yeah. because you, you, you feel like you're watching and it's hands off because that's the vibe back then. But I imagine there's still a lot of you should be wearing this and doing this and acting like this. And here's your stage persona. Yeah. Um, luckily for us, part of early, early grunge was don't listen to what anyone else says. <laughs> That's number one. So we never really took input from the record company. That was one thing we could all agree on. Um, probably <laughs> to our own, you know, it's not like a record company can't have an idea that's legitimately, you know, worth thinking about or inserting into the conversation. But in general, we produced records in a way with people that wanted to work with us. It was always our own choices about that stuff, um, sometimes to the better of the song, sometimes to the worse. So, but that was never, there was never any, we had, we didn't have any Spingalis. Yeah. <laughs> um, or anyone sort of going, Hey, you know, um, was the record company president Dave Glue, who um, he did make a suggestion at one point when we were trying to think of names, because at one point we were called Mookie Blaylock, and um, he said that I got an idea for you, but yeah, you gotta you guys it because it's the best one. He said I think you should call yourselves Headband. <laughs> what? And we thought that's terrible. We won't use that. But that is uh, that is a terrible <laughs> pun and a terrible name. I'm glad they did not. I'm just trying to picture it like uh, they go around. They're like, all right, Stone, you're going to be the weird hat guy. So uh, yeah, all your show, you know, like right. just absurd stuff like that. Uh, thankfully, that that wasn't the case. So then you follow up 10 with Versus, which sets the record at the time for the most copies of an album sold in a week. You realize, oh, my God, we did it again. We're still great. And you come into some sense of power just a couple years in where you start a war with Ticketmaster. You say you're not going to make music videos anymore because you want people to creatively and artistically interpret music instead of associating it with some sort of visual that you've presented for them. Um, this is all very, you know, punk rock and like, yeah. we, we don't have to play by the rules. Are there any regrets looking back now and how it limited your touring? Or does it feel like a statement that you needed to make, even if eventually you did find yourselves having to essentially come back to Ticketmaster because of the way touring works? You know, I think a lot of that was Ed's, you know, dealing with being insanely famous. I mean, all of us could still go to the grocery store and sort of do things like that. And he entered in, you know, when you're on the cover of Time Magazine, you kind of get into that Hollywood level of fame where it's, you know, visceral in terms of like, it's everywhere and there's no conversation you're having that's not filtered through um, someone's expectation of who you are or whatever it is. And so I think in terms of pulling back from the videos, in retrospect, it was one of the, it was a great move for us, you know, and, it, and again, it's one of those things where you look back and it was, a, at the time, it seemed crazy to me and it seemed like, well, there's a way to do a video that you don't have to, you can do a video a million different ways. You don't have mm -hmm. to put yourself all over it, but it's, you know, it's, it's a way for people to kind of get to the song at the time MTV was like huge or whatever, but in retrospect, you know, it really did it, it, it as much as it might've sort of hurt us in the short term and the long term, 
people are like probably thankful that we went away. There's lots of bands that should go away for a while. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you like see bands in the press all the time. And it's like, that's what they get good at is doing press. Mm-hmm. Probably like me right now. <laughs> um, well, but also and, thankful uh, that you took a stand and that it meant made it clear that for a couple yeah, of years, it affected you absolutely. drastically. And it meant that it mattered that to stand, you. Yeah, that stand still paid off. I mean, at the time, Ticketmaster could charge whatever they wanted to on top of your ticket price so if you mm. if we wanted to do a 40 dollar ticket price and we're a sellout rock and roll band that's like they could add on a 15 dollar service charge and get it easily because our tickets were worth 150 bucks mm-hmm. or whatever the going rate was the scalper rate so we have a you know the ticket master now has to show you what their rate is and you agree on what that rate is before you ever go out you know they have you know we've been working with them now for a while and it's they've improved their practices so it's still the best vehicle for us to get tickets to our fans so we use them and uh until there's a a better less hassly way of getting tickets to fans so right now that they're they're still the ball game but at least we're not the issue that we had was them just basically tacking on a 20 dollar service charge like wait a minute that sounds that's kind of crazy so um, we're going to get to why the touring that you didn't do this year ended up helping with Painted Shield. But I, I'm, I'm curious that you're you're at 30 years now of Pearl Jam. Um, how do you even begin to explain the longevity of it? It's a it's a marriage of many dudes um, who are on tour together <laughs> and are creating and have different creative differences and lifestyle differences and desires. How do you do that? Um, you know, we're in a groove right now in terms of like, I don't think anybody, um, everybody in the band knows how lucky we are to kind of still be a band and still be influencing each other and, and looking back and sort of going, wow, this is, you know, this is incredible. So I think there's a sacredness to it at this point that I don't think any of us are interested. There's plenty of room to do whatever you want. If you don't want to be in Pearl Jam right now, you can, you know, I, I can make a painted shield record. And uh, mm-hmm. I can play music with other people and it's it's absolutely OK. So I think we all feel really, really blessed. It's a great source of comfort, I think, and security that that we have each other, that we stuck through times that were not always easy. I mean, there's so many reasons to break up. Anybody that mm-hmm. has a business or a collaborative project or a uh, a family, anyone that has any, you know, relationships that are tied together in, in strong ways knows that those are the people you fight with. You know, those are the those are the most difficult, you know, struggles because you're confronted by your own personality and other people's issues and how it all affects each other. And so uh, there's always a reason to break up. But uh, we've always sort of managed to figure that we're better off together and that we would regret it um, if we did. And I, I think we've been sort of proven right on that front. Not in a bad or necessarily good way, but who is the most different now than he was when you started the band? Wow. That's a good question. I mean, I'm a homebody now. Now I just like, I all, you know, I'm a cancer and ever, and I was ne- going as a, as a kid going, you know, through my thirties, I was out. I was like, you know, I was like, I'm not like a cancer. I don't want to be now. I'm just like sitting in my cave. Just Now you're in your cave talking <laughs> astrology signs. Just like, just like every hardcore even, rocker. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure I even buy into astrology, but I, I buy into kind of the general 
some of the concepts of it. Yeah. You know, it's like based on patterns that people are, you know, and, but um, I don't know. I, I, all of us have, have changed quite a bit. And then all of us are, are, are kind of the same, you know, Mike McCready, who's been sober now for 22 years. I mean, he still tells poo poo pee pee jokes. So that's good. <laughs> that's the same. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe me, maybe me. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so you were supposed to be touring all of this year. Um, at what point was it clear that that was completely off the books? And and how long did you take before you said, OK, I'm going to use this time instead of, you know, relaxing or making sourdough or whatever? <laughs> I'm going to use this for my musical interests. Um, well, I think we knew, you know, a couple of weeks before we were supposed to go on that first leg, which was in February. I mean, that, that it wasn't happening. I mean, so um, we weren't going to take any chances and we knew, um, well, we didn't know the scope of how this thing was going to play out, but we knew that it didn't make sense for us to push it. Um, so I don't think any of us thought it was going to be quite this long, but now in retrospect, it, it makes perfect sense that it's going to be at least this long until a vaccine and until, you know, people aren't uh, the last place people are going to be going is probably big, big events in general. Um, I think those are going to be the most, the least right. um, <laughs> attractive to people that are sort of thinking that's not a risk I need to take right now. So mm-hmm. um we were pretty quick in making that determination. And we said, this is the right thing for us to do as a business and as a band and for our fans. And um, as far as Painted Shield or to working on music, you know, Painted Shield, I've been working on for six years. So um, it's with Mason Jennings. And um, so this gave us a chance to finish it, which was, you know, getting something across the finish line. Um, sometimes it can be a difficult task. So there was some time uh, to do that. And it, it, it did work out that the whole record had been already basically made remotely anyway. And um, so we just uh, we just dotted the I's and crossed the T's and uh, and got it done. So, yeah, back in 2014, uh, Mason Jennings manager, right, suggested that you guys should work together. It's an interesting mix. He's folky and indie and has such an interesting voice, very acoustic. Um, yeah. So it must have been that he needed to get a little harder, right? He's like, all right, we need to add in some shred here. Um, what did you think when you heard about the, the possibility? You know, Dan Field is a dear old friend. I didn't know Mason's music at all at that time. So, uh, you know, he he just said, I'm working with this artist. I, I love Dan. Dan was the tour manager for ministry at Lollapalooza. So I'd known him for years. And um, he just made that suggestion of like, you should, you know, Cause I'm always writing songs. I've got, I got demos for days. I, you know, Dropbox, <laughs> you can just like, you know, Oh, this. so I just sent him a couple ideas and just cause it's fun to mess around. And um, he sent back knife fight right off the bat. And I was like, okay, that's like Iggy pop meets like some kind of cool, you know, <laughs> early seventies, like, yeah. you know, thing. And um I was like, this is awesome. Um, let's do some more of this. And we did a few more and we didn't have as much success. You know, it sort of 
the the honeymoon sort of was like short-lived it was like okay there's that <laughs> that one is perfect and then it required some more like back and forth and um sending more songs and kind of you know both of us kind of getting to know each other's styles and seeing how it worked and we and we didn't take put any pressure on ourselves we didn't even know we were making a record we just thought we were <laughs> just kind of bouncing songs back and forth so it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that it really was like okay we've got maybe enough for a record and this would be cool and then we then we really thought about well what is the the next layers that would make this thing special and i think matt chamberlain played on some of the demos of mine that i had sent him and i was like if we can get matt sort of more invested in this thing we should and matt's a great songwriter he's an incredible engineer musician i mean he plays with everyone he plays with dylan he plays with bowie he plays you know he, he played played with Pearl Jam. He played with Soundgarden. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's done it all. And um, he sent about six months ago, he sent uh, the music basically finished for I am your country minus the, the vocals. So when we heard that and then Mason put that vocal on, then we were like, okay, now this is, this is legitimate. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is kind of taking the record in a new direction and really adding a, a layer to it. And the same thing goes with Brittany Davis, who's a Seattle keyboard player, uh, singer, songwriter, who's really incredible. And um, when she started singing more on the record and kind of blending her voice with Mason, that's when it started to be like, okay, this is now it's starting to sound like a band and not just two guys, you know, bouncing demos off each other. Yeah. Um, and then the last layer was really John Congleton, who's the mixer. And he really took the sort of this whole, you know, we sent him all the songs and just said, you're an incredible mixer. You're a great musician. Be aggressive, you know, like don't, mm be part of this thing. Think of yourself as a member of the band. What would you turn off? What would you turn up? What would you, and really kind of opened ourselves up to kind of having that again, a sort of an executive producer or almost like a coach really in terms of being able to kind of go in and go, you guys are, this is great. This is great. Not so great. Great, great. Not so great. You know what I mean? Like, and really see it from the outside in a way that we couldn't at that point, we'd already worked on it for six years so yeah um, have to step so, away let someone else put yeah. some new ears on it yeah so all of those moves at the end really really made the record happen um yeah. and then we were really excited then we knew that we had done something right by hey um guess what inviting more people to be involved and sort of listening <laughs> to other people's ideas Crazy. that coming back around again <laughs> well i'm curious because you know you said you have uh, demos for days and you mess around with people and experiment a lot um, it sounds like dating almost. I, I mean, how many how many people do you go on these dates with? And at what point do you think, oh, this is a real relationship? I want to make an album out of this versus not just we often. made a cool song. I, not very often. Mostly I kind of finish them myself or, you know, um, and mostly I, you know, uh, mostly I want them to be Pearl Jam songs. That's that's the main <laughs> reason why, you know, I, whenever yeah. I'm writing, I'm always thinking about Eddie and I'm thinking, I wonder if he'll like this one. <laughs> I hope he does. <laughs> but, um, uh, he can't wade through all my demos. He's like, Gosser, just send me like one really good thing, right? <laughs> when I'm asking for it. I'm like, right. okay, I got I got right. you. Well, and interestingly, you were working on Gigaton, the newest Pearl Jam record at the same time as you were doing Painted Shield. Was there a song that you, you sent to, to Pearl Jam and Gigaton and they passed and you thought, let's see if it works with Mason or are they so different? Uh, you know, I don't think there's anything that crossed over, but you know, it's it's one of those things. It's like, you really, the way Ed writes is it really, it really needs to be part of a process that he's in right with you right there. And so for Ed, you're much better off bringing in something that you just wrote this morning. You know, right. that's the way he ends up responding to things. It's like, 
he just has a different process and a different aesthetic that you can't predict. So I've stopped trying Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, you know, I've, I've written plenty of what I think are amazing hit songs (laughs) and then I don't really hear it. Damn it. Please. It's gotta be a hit. Tell me about black. What was, was that a sitting down with Ed kind of situation? No, that was a, you know, record the song basically as it is, you know, and he got that on a demo and then sang over it in San Diego. So that so was, you a, wrote that, that whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote the, I wrote the guitar and, and the sort of the do, 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 do's and, mm-hmm. and Jeff wrote the bass and um, you know, but the, but the basic arrangement, yeah, is, is the same as it was, you know, when I put it down. So what happens when you put something down, you've got an idea and then, Ed comes in with lyrics and you're like, what the hell is this? Like this song was great. I hate what you chose <laughs> for the content of the, of the lyrics. Cause that's so often what people are going to attach to is what's the story being told. Well, that doesn't happen. Um, it really, <laughs> I don't know. Good. I can't think of when that <laughs> has happened. You know, maybe there's a time where he was going through a really like, you know, super uh, aggro punk <laughs> phase or something where it's like, I felt like this song just to be just, you know, sang a little more, it's going to be great. You know, like, But you learn quickly that, again, it's the long haul. So you try not to get too uh, caught up in whatever is happening right now because you've written all these great songs together and there's Mm -hmm. great songs to be written and some of them aren't great. And sometimes you don't think they're great and then they're great. And you go, oh, I I didn't think it was great, but it is great. (laughs) So that's the biggest lesson that you learn in, in bands with long lifespans is how wrong you could have been, uh, how wrong you are at certain times in your career where you're like, God, if everyone just listened to me, it would have been fantastic. <laughs> and then you look back and go, wow, if everyone listened to me, we'd still be doing this same thing here. Right? Yeah. It's not doing this or this or so it's some of that. It's pretty fascinating to imagine. Um, I think we all have this very old school idea of a band sitting in a room, writing a song together, note by note and, and really feeling it out. And this painted shield is literally swapping Dropbox files back yeah. and forth. You've never all played together in a room. No. We That's haven't. wild. Yeah. I played with Matt together and I think Mason was in Seattle one time or whatever, but you know, rock and roll actually goes on like that a lot, even before COVID, because a lot of times a band will record a song together, but then the guitar players will all come in separately and then fix all their parts. And then they're playing with just the engineer in the control room. So it's sometimes not as live as you would want to imagine it. And it's maybe one of those things like sausage where it's just, yeah. just in your <laughs> mind, just think of them all together. Yeah. I don't want to know which ones of you are the lips and the assholes and which ones are actual, you know, solid, good meat. (laughs) I won't, I won't pick and choose, but yeah, we never want to, we never want to hear about how the sausage is made. Um, So I'm listening to this painted shield album and I admittedly only made it twice through. So I know a lot of things come, come back through, but I hear like Beatles and Tom Petty. And sometimes uh, Mason's voice sounds a little hippie like Jack Johnson. And then it's got Weezer vibes on, on the level to me is very Weezer. And then, you know, sort of funky. I keep thinking on the levels, Joe Walsh. That's what I, I I keep thinking like kind of 70 Eagles, you know, so so Joe Walsh solo record. Like that's what I keep like kind of hoping. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting and, and it's, 
it's a fun sound. It's not, it doesn't seem to be taking itself too seriously. Um, how do you describe it? If someone said, tell me about Painted Shield, is it like Pearl Jam? What would you say? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I, you know, to me, it's magic. So I don't, I try not to think about it in terms of breaking it down too much. Whatever it was, it was a, it was a long journey of Mason and I sort of just kind of looking at a chance encounter uh, which is just him and me being randomly connected by his manager and and trusting in kind of the rock and roll nature of just chance and also um, collaboration, which is sort of being pushed in directions that you don't normally go or knowing that you want to go in someplace slightly different than you've gone in the past or you know, believing in things that you, you know, that you wrote, you know, some of these riffs are 10, 12 years old for me, more, mm. 15 maybe even. So it's just like going back through an old thing going, oh, you know what, that, that still is a pretty good riff. I'm going to, I'm going to pull that back out. So it's just a lesson in, in sort of the spirit of rock and roll for me. It's like, yeah. you know, you, you take little parts and you bring them together and, and good things can happen. And especially if it's really, really talented people, which yeah. is what's going on there. Cause Mason's very talented, incredible lyricist, like great, great lyricist. And um, his voice goes all kinds of different places. And he's in, and he's insecure about his voice. He always he felt like he hmm. couldn't. He loves hard rock, but didn't feel like he could sing hard rock because his voice doesn't have. He describes it as it doesn't have enough sharp edges like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. You know, but there's great vocalists out there that don't have sharp yeah. edges. Look at, you know, Josh Homie, you know, from the Queens. He's it's not like he's like some kind of like operatic you know singer it's like he just puts it in the right spot and it yeah. sounds great so well that's what i was going to say actually is interesting about this painted shield album is um mason's voice does sound really different on different songs and it reminds me of how pearl jam can go the gamut from i'll be blasting state of love and trust in my car and then you know future days was my wedding's first dance <laughs> like okay. it's elderly yeah. woman to like yeah, yeah. shred 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 and it's yeah, not yeah. as it's not as diverse on this painted shield but his yeah. voice like the, the difference in i'm your country to 10 years later one is yeah. like this acoustic sweet versus something that's much more distorted sounding so he does have a range there that's interesting. And that's that's magic. I mean, that's when when singers are able to kind of inhabit different sort of characters like that. That's that's what you hope for and, and sort of dream about. But that was always built into, you know, Pearl Jam's sort of manifesto, um, you know, is that you got to get crazy, fast, loud, heavy. And then you got to have a, then you got to hit them with like acoustics. Super, yeah. You know, Give just them the war, bring away now, which yeah. is the Zeppelin. I mean, it's. It's like Zeppelin, you know, you, you look at those bands, those formative bands like, you know, Zeppelin and the Stones and the Beatles. It's like they did it all. They mm -hmm. they weren't afraid to to have a quiet song. You got to go up to go down. You've got Gigaton that is essentially still being promoted, even though the tour isn't on. You've got this Painted Shield album that uh, drops next month. And the Seahawks are perhaps the best team in the NFL. I mean, everything's coming up Gossard. What, yeah. What's uh, how are we balancing trying to promote this music while being able to still enjoy that? You know, this could be Russell Wilson's first MVP year. Well, it would be great if if Russell got the MVP. And I'm I'm I always love to watch the Seahawks and I'm a diehard Seahawks fan. Um, you know, we're working, we're working some stuff out right now, but, um, every week I, I got to turn in 
I tune in and, 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 and watch and, and believe it's always a nail biter. It's always just heart attack. After <laughs> they heart never attack. play a normal game. <laughs> the like, Seahawks are incapable. They, can't. they, they really are. And it's through the whole, it's through, uh, you know, the last 10 years, it's like, it's, it's always, you know, just, we, we can't, we can't just put anybody away. We just have to <laughs> stay close. That's how, you know, we're going to get you. It's like, we're, if we're behind by seven points, you know, we don't want to be up at the end. I think we're, we're better when we're down by seven points and yeah. have the ball as opposed to like hanging on to a lead and going. Yeah, because you let Russ cook when you're coming from behind. You got to let I know, Russ cook. Yeah. He's like, and then he's talking to everybody and getting everybody's head and pumping them up. And But, the you know, our, our division right now is cr- just watching the Rams play mm-hmm. the last couple nights ago and then watching yep. – watching green bay play and then watching you know san francisco just take out yeah. the patriots wow what's going on with the patriots though that's tom brady it's a big now, topic of conversation around these parts <laughs> who's Everybody. a bigger who's a bigger fan you of the seahawks or, or ed of the cubs do you guys fight over oh that's not quite ed a much <laughs> bigger fan there's no question about it he's like devoted we have a cubs we have a baseball museum yeah i don't know if you know that or not that might I've, be I've seen it. My friend used to be a sound engineer for you guys. So he showed oh, me some, he showed me some, some photos? photos of the, yeah. 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 It's a pretty high level. Uh, yeah. You know, work of, it's well, a work and, of art. And you have entire albums of uh, let's play two. And, and, you know, you have, you yeah, have no. a, a movie that's a, a collaboration between Pearl Jam and the Cubs yeah, yeah, world right. series. So, run. I well, mean, it's, yeah, well, I don't have any, I don't that, think you know, Ed gives you a choice. Knows who I am at all. <laughs> So we work like, on and that? they don't want me. I mean, it's like, what are you going to do? It's like, I'm, gonna, I'm the rhythm guitar player in Pearl Jam, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's like, nah. Ed was actually the one who broke the news to me that Kyle Schwarber would be playing in the World Series because he was texting okay. with Theo Epstein on a rooftop okay. as we were waiting for the series to start. So okay. he's pretty tapped in. He's, he's yeah, breaking well, news to sports good. reporters. You get to- you get to hang out with Theo sometimes. He's a yeah. gentleman. He's, he's a awesome. Guy. Yeah, we're sad that he's uh, on his way out, probably from our from our team, headed somewhere new. So I I did not know that, but yeah, I'm new challenges. He's I, we're gonna go. He's gonna go. Uh, to, not, he's not actually. I was gonna say he's gonna go to the Mets and and figure it out for them. But I, <laughs> I, I think even Theo doesn't want a job that dire. Um, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Question one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Uh, Funhouse by the Stooges. Nice. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, stubborn optimism. <laughs> I like that. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? <sighs> Not really learning how to play guitar as well as I should, given how much time I've had. <laughs> Come on. That's <laughs> ridiculous. It's, it's so true though. I barely can, I could, I don't know that I know how to play a major scale. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Do you ever have a song that you want to play and you can't because you're incapable of playing the thing that you want it to sound like? Uh, no, I compromise there pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I go, if it's not, I like this too. Whatever I can do, then I just make that the thing I like. <laughs> there you go. That's a good approach to life. Um, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? 
Uh, I've gotten punched a few times and it's maybe the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life because I was very uh, sarcastic. I thought sarcasm was like a gift from heaven when I was um, 15 years old. So um, I got dropped a couple of times and that was like, (laughs) wow, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to stop doing that. So um, and luckily nobody actually broke my broke my face. So. I um I also think sarcasm is a gift from heaven, but because I'm a lady, I've never gotten punched for it. So I never got it knocked out of me. I still yeah. lead with it. It's still yeah. my, my go-to. Okay. It's my love language really is yeah. sarcasm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So be, I guess I'm lucky. Out there, it's, equal, it's, an, it's, it's getting more coming, equal. So it's getting more equal. Gonna... Yeah, I'm very tall. I don't I'm I'm not the lady oh, yeah. you're gonna fight. If you're gonna pick okay. one on a lady, it's probably not gonna be me. Okay, uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Um, God, uh, any caretaker on a, um, rich guy's desert Island that's there by himself right now. That's just like, you know what? I've got the best. I'm uh, we're uh, my wife and I are so like zoomed kids, zoom feed, get KP duty. I mean, it's just, there's everything is in one hour increments. I've got four kids. So it's just like four on purpose. (laughs) Uh, yeah, uh, kind of on purpose. It must have been on purpose. I know it was. No, it's. I, I regret none of them, but I. I really don't want to have any more kids. So yeah, uh, yeah. You should have made friends with Kim Kardashian because she just took a bunch of people to a private island. So yeah, yeah. you could have had your uh, abandoned island fantasy. It was. I wanted to be there the week before Kim Kardashian there arrived, or the week go. after after it got cleaned up. But um, I just want to read books in the sand. That would be great. Ditto. I agree. Everyone talks about how much time they have right now. And I don't have any time to do all the things that I would like to do if I had time. Uh, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, God. Um, Oh, I know. I went to New York once and and we were uh, we were were friends with Neil Young and Neil was in New York and he was getting inducted into the he's being honored or something. And we had played some shows with him and so I knew him pretty well. And I was like, Neil, I, what are you doing? And I, I called him or whatever. Somehow I ended up going over to his place and we were playing together and we played a couple of songs that we played on the mirror ball. And I had this little ice bucket and I put this tiny little amp in it and I was playing and it was yeah. like, we were both like, this sounds cool or whatever. And he goes, you should come play a song with me tonight. You know, I'm getting honored at this thing. And I was like, no, oh, this sounds great. You know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm that guy. I can go up there and play with Neil Young. It's going to be <laughs> I've got this in the bag. We just did it. I mean, it sounded great in his hotel room. And then we, you know, the night comes up and it's black tie and it's thousand people in a ballroom. And um, I bring out my bucket, and my tiny little lamp and, you know, Neil Young introduces me and the thing starts to feed back and it just turns into this. And then we, and then he just plays and it's basically (laughs) like, I'm just like crapping on Neil Young's song in front of it. And it was, uh, there was a smattering of very polite applause at the end. And I went back to my table and um, our record company president looked over and was like, wow, that was, that was interesting. That was special. Yeah, that was really, <laughs> and I was like, wow, that is, and I, I actually tried to track down the, cause I think they filmed it. I'm like, I gotta get that footage somehow. <laughs> gotta see I'm, how I'm like bad sweating that really on your was, behalf but... thinking about oh oh, when you're on this. stage and like you can't get the feedback to stop and you're like pulling the mic farther oh, no. away like, what's happening here 
every uh, ounce of magic that was in that hotel room was like not anywhere near. Um, I don't know. Was that the last it, time you were nervous while playing, or do you still ever get nervous for a gig? I'm nervous. I, I'm nervous every time we play. Really? Yeah. Good energy. Good nervous energy. I mean, I you know, it's you just expect it. You're just you know, you're going out. You're hoping for the best. It's a crapshoot out there a lot of times. So you just you know, it's not like. I'm going to die nervous energy. It's like, <laughs> I'm used, I've, I've acclimated to this level of nervousness. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm used to it, but it's nervous. Yeah. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, I, I should, uh, I learn how to do something better um, than I'm doing it right now. Right now I'm just doing dishes and trying to keep my head above water. And <laughs> I, I should uh, study a foreign language. Okay. All right. Yeah. Pick a place you're going to tour to that you really want to be uh great and proficient when you get there. That's a goal. Yeah. Um, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society had to adhere to? Um, yeah. Uh, connect with your community. Hmm. I like that in person when we're allowed in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not just via the internet. Yeah. Um, Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's been a while. I used to get scared as a kid, you know, just like, you know, hearing noises in the house and thinking, oh my God, someone's here. It's been a while since I was, I was really scared, but um, probably, you know, recently probably like thinking I left the stove on and uh, <laughs> yeah. basically hoping I didn't burn the house down and all my children. That's you know? not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. If that's your biggest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Number 10, finally, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, generous, um, kind, and uh, ridiculous. I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. Like I like yeah. that. Um, and who should I have on the podcast? It could be anyone from anywhere that does anything that you think is interesting. Uh, how about Borat? I mean, I, 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 I got to... <laughs> He's he's fascinating, man. That guy's incredible. <laughs> the amount of editing, if I had not not yeah. even Sasha Baron Cohen, but actual Borat on the podcast, my yeah. poor producer would be busy for days. Uh, if I could get him, that would be a great one. He's a genius. Yeah. I mean, performance yeah. art at a level that is impossible yeah. to even understand. It shows you um, what's possible in the world. You can make up a crazy gig for yourself. You really can if yeah. you're good at, if you're talented. Yeah. Enough. Um, well, this was so awesome. I really enjoyed talking to you and I'm oh. looking forward to uh, painted shield coming out and, and everybody else getting a chance to hear it as well. Uh, so good luck with that and, and yeah, planning thank you so much. I hope to see you guys in, uh, in Europe in 2021. I'm hoping Ed coordinates with the Cubs trip that's gotten rescheduled out there. So we can just hit up a, a show Wait, and, a, the, and a game at the same time. The Cubs are playing in Europe. Yeah. So they were supposed to play this summer and it got obviously bounced to next year. So yeah. uh, hopefully okay, wow. we, we were what planning country? on trying England? to balance. Yeah. In England, we were trying to balance yeah. the Cubs trip with uh, one of your shows out in Europe and okay. everything. We didn't get yeah. anything. Uh, so next year we're going to reschedule and hope that it happens. Yeah. Well, it's it's been really fun chatting with you. So thanks for yeah. having me. It's uh, my first ESPN podcast and it's it's there fantastic. I mean, yeah. I'll do them all now. All right. Woohoo. <laughs> I'm going to send you over to my pal Stu Gatz. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, sunrises. 
Why are they so damn early? Like, I don't want it to be dark out all day or all morning, but I also would like to see a beautiful sunrise. But I also definitely don't want to wake up at 6 a.m. That's ridiculous. What, do I have kids? No, I don't. I don't have kids. I most definitely do not have kids. And I most definitely sleep in till like 9 a.m. as often as possible. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I'm doing this 30-day happiness challenge thing and I'm crossing off this giant bingo-like board of workout classes and activities and gratitude letters and all these things that bring good vibes. And the check out a sunrise box is just staring at me, laughing at me like, this ain't happening. You ain't checking this one off. And you know what? At first, I was tempted to prove that check out a sunrise box wrong. And I was tempted to pull some shenanigans and maybe watch a live stream of a sunset in another country that occurred at a more reasonable hour. Uh, and then pretend it was live. But you know what? I'm adult enough to know that that's not the whole point of catching a sunrise and the exercise at hand. Uh, I would not be experiencing the things I was meant to, watching a sunrise in another country on a Zoom. Uh, So I'm going to leave that box blank. I'm going to uncheck it. And it's not going to bother me. Uh, This giant control freak, overachiever over here, not going to be bothered at all. I'm super totally chill about it. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. I clearly don't care at all that I'm not going to check off the mother sunrise box because sunrises are so mother early i'm super chill about it there i fixed it if you got a dilemma for the commission to fix tweet it to me at sarah spain or go to the itunes or podcast app subscribe rate and review to that's what she said with sarah spain leave a dilemma in your review and maybe i'll fix it later thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me well that's what she said 